We are in the middle of a series called Church Matters, where we are in the process of a membership renewal, a membership renewal, and that's something that Crosspoint has done for a long time, where annually uh, members of the church recommit themselves uh, to uh, carrying out the, both the blessings and the, the obligations, the responsibilities of life in the church. Uh, to that end, you should have seen on your way in this morning a card that looks like this that says Membership Renewal 2023 at the top of it. These are in a stack by the door of the worship center. You'll only need one of these per family or household, um, so every individual doesn't need to have one of these or fill out one of these. We're asking for one per family or household. You can also, if you prefer, fill it out online. I just sent an email this morning, actually, that had the link to the online form. That's identical. It's the exact same information. So one is not superior to the other. Just depends on what's easier for you and what you prefer. So if you'd like to do it online, go to the email and find it there. Or you can click the, uh, there's a QR code on a thing that, that's out in the hallway here and in the main buildings. Eventually, it's going to be on the back of our chairs. We're not there yet. Uh, but that QR code will take you to a page that has a bunch of links. It'll have registration things and forms to fill out and online giving and all that sort of stuff will be collected in one place rather than lots of little codes that take you to different pages. Uh, so if you see one of those codes around the campus, you can scan that and the membership renewal form link is right there on that, uh, on that page. So encourage you to, uh, in one or the other of those ways, uh, to fill out this form. Uh, we will have a, a sort of a celebration of uh, our renewal on June 11th. And that's the day, if you're filling out a physical card, that's the day that we'll actually ask you to bring it and to sort of hand it in as a portion of the worship service. And I've said this several times, I'm going to keep saying it, the, the act of renewing your membership in this way is largely symbolic. You are not saying by not turning in a card, I'm not a member anymore, okay? You're not, you don't unmember yourself in that way. Um, th that, that would take more, more, all right? It would take more conversation, more, more of a process. Um, but... Uh, we think there's some value in just the sort of the tangible action of making a statement, taking a step, and in solidarity with one another saying, yes, we, we remember and we recognize the commitment that it means, that it takes to live as the people of God in the body of Christ. And so we are re-agreeing uh, to live in those ways with one another. So that's, that's what this is about. In the course of that process, we're spending six weeks um, exploring the church, the, the nature and scope of life together in a church. In the first week, we looked at the question, who are we? Like, what is it that makes a church a church? What is the local church? The second week, we looked at the question, why do we gather? And explored really the, the fundamental importance and responsibility of the weekly worship gathering of the church. Last week, we asked the question, what do we owe each other? about the benefits and boundaries of, uh, of church membership. And today, we're going to ask this question, what are we good for? What are we good for? And that's essentially what we're exploring in that is, what is the church's mission in the world? Why are we here? What are we to be doing uh, in the, the communities where God has placed us? Here's a main idea. I'll just tell it to you now, and then we'll go through it. The main idea is this. The local church provides the world with a living, embodied witness to the kingdom of God. The local church provides the world with a living, embodied witness to the kingdom of God. 
So I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, first book in the New Testament, first of the four Gospels, the fifth chapter. And the few verses we'll look at today come early in Jesus' so-called Sermon on the Mount, which takes up Matthew's, Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And he begins the sermon with, with, with what's come to be called the Beatitudes, which means blessing, the blessed are. And then the passage we'll look at comes right after that. But before we get to the verses that we'll focus on, just a little bit of context and framework for understanding the Sermon on the Mount, I think, would be helpful. So this sermon is typically regarded as Jesus' exposition of the law. That is the Old Testament, Old Covenant law that Israel, the nation, lived under uh, under the Old Covenant. And so Jesus is taking that law and sort of expounding it, uh, and indeed applying it. Uh, it's, it's important to note that Jesus does not abolish the law. He says that very clearly. I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So his teaching here is not a replacement of the law, but an application of the law. So we don't read the Sermon on the Mount to go, okay, the Old Testament is no longer relevant. We read the Sermon on the Mount and we come to understand the kind of people that Jesus expects his church to be, the kind of kingdom that Jesus is the ruler over. And if you think about the Old Covenant, the old and the nation of Israel under that covenant, the law provided uh, the shape and boundaries for life as God's covenant nation. And in the same way, through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, its application here in the New Testament defines the boundaries of life in the kingdom of God. The new covenant family, not organized into a geopolitical nation state like Israel was, but organized into assemblies of God's people all over the world, namely the local church. And so the Sermon on the Mount is not symbolic or rhetorical. It is how Jesus intends for his people to live in the world as citizens of his kingdom. So kingdom is all over this sermon. It's the framework. The kingdom of God looks like this. And you can tell right off the bat that this is a different kind of kingdom than the world knows because in, in the so-called Beatitudes that lead off the sermon, Jesus celebrates not power and wealth and ease, but meekness and poverty of spirit and persecution for righteousness' sake. These are not the values of the world, but these are the values of the kingdom of God that Jesus indeed intends his people to embody and to reflect in the world. I'm going to read for you verses 13 through 16, and these are the verses we'll focus on this morning. Right after the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor, blessed are those who mourn, etc. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And here we are, verse 13, look with me. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, 
How shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So he tells us two things, essentially. Two metaphors, two images that describe the, the manner of, not the manner of life, but the effect of the people of God, the church, the kingdom of God in the world. Salt and light. When he says you are the salt of the earth, we obviously have to ask ourselves the question, what does salt do? What's the purpose of salt? What's the effect of salt? And there's really two basic answers. Number one, it is a preservative, especially in Jesus' day, where they didn't have freezers and refrigerators where they could toss the steak and bring it out when they were ready for it. They needed something to keep the meat good long enough to to eat it. And salt was the main preservative that they had available to them. And so it preserves what is good. It prolongs the process of decay. And it's a flavoring agent. And we still use salt this way. It's a flavoring agent. When you put salt on something that you're eating, it enhances the experiential goodness of the food, right? So it both preserves, it prolongs the process of decay, and it enhances the experiential goodness of the food that it flavors. And so it is with the church. Local churches, as embassies of God's kingdom, we talked about that the first week in the series, local churches both preserve what is good in the world and enhance the experience of life in the world as they provide a taste of Christ's presence and goodness. Life in the kingdom of God is supposed to look different. It's supposed to have a different flavor. It's supposed to be noticeably distinct from the ways of the world. And so the presence of the kingdom of God within the local church is itself an enhancement of sorts to the experience of life under God's rule. But, says Jesus, salt is only good, that is, it only fulfills its purpose if it remains pure. If it loses its taste or loses its saltiness, it's useless to people, right? And so, if we're applying the salt image to the church, we'd say that in order for the church to rightly fulfill its purposes in the world, of preserving and enhancing, it must maintain its purity. The church has to be pure in order to live out, in order to have the effect that it's intended to have in the world, namely the effect of prolonging the decay around us and the effect of enhancing the experience of life. Dan Doriani says, disciples must live by kingdom values if they hope to impede 
the immorality of their age. So there is a sense in which the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ, is supposed to have a, a, an effect of delaying, of pushing back the boundaries of brokenness and decay and immorality in the world. We're going to talk more in a little bit about that purity angle, about the church remaining pure in order to uh, uh, protect the world from decay. So bookmark that. We'll come back to it. But this is the first image Jesus gives us. You are the salt of the earth, both a preservative to prolong the decay, to, to preserve what is good in the world. And there is good in the world, right? By God's common grace, there is good that ought to be preserved. And there is evil that ought to be pushed back. And the church is to have both of those effects. And indeed, to provide a flavor of the kingdom, the life of God's people among the world. You are the salt of the earth. And the second metaphor he gives, the second image is this. You are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. Now, in the Bible... Light symbolizes purity, truth, beauty, knowledge, hope. When you see the light, it often embodies these various virtues. For example, Isaiah 9, 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. That's about the light of hope. That's those who have been in bondage, those who have been enslaved and poor, now a great light has dawned, dawned upon them in the coming of Messiah, and bond, bonds are broken, and, uh, and pathway is, is seen and granted, right? So light brings hope and knowledge and purity. It's significant, I think, to consider that Jesus declared this very same moniker for himself. In John eight twelve, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so the metaphor of light is perhaps primarily about spiritual guidance and clarity in a context of blindness and confusion. We're instructed, after all, to follow Jesus' light. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. How do we have the light of life? Following Jesus. So it's about guidance. It's about wisdom. And Jesus clearly has in mind the church's outward public orientation because of the very next thing he says. So right after in verse 14 where he says, you are the light of the world, he gives two metaphors describing how the light among God's people should function in the world. A city on a hill and a lamp in a house, right? A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Imagine a, a first century traveler at the close of day who can see from a distance the lights of candles and lamps in the windows of houses and buildings in the city that's elevated because it's up on a hill. And it gives him guidance. It shows him where he's going and it infuses him with, with energy. Okay, just a little bit more. I can see where I'm headed, right? As a traveler, as a journeyer, you understand how getting just a glimpse of the destination gives you a boost of energy to make it there, right? It's when you're driving home after a long road trip and you see that sign that says Greenville, 25 miles or whatever. Oh, we're almost there. You know, it's, it's that kind of effect. 
And so the church, as an embassy of the kingdom of God, is a city on a hill that provides this kind of guidance. Those who are outside it should see it and should be affected by it. The second metaphor is a lamp. No one, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. I mean, it would be utterly absurd to light a lamp to illuminate a darkened room and then to cover it up so that it can't be seen. You just utterly defeated the purpose of what you were trying to do. The reason you light a lamp is to give light to all in the house. The purpose of light is to dispel darkness. And the only way for that to happen is for the light to be visible to those in darkness. In other words, it has to be in the darkness, in the proximity of darkness in order to dispel that darkness. The people of God must live distinctly as God's people among the world so that others will see the light that we're shining. And so in Matthew 5, 14, Jesus takes what is true of himself as the light of the world and applies it to his people. The tangible presence of Christ in the world, shining truth and knowledge and hope into a world of darkness. What a calling. We've been entrusted with the very light of Christ in this world. What are we going to do with it? Hide it under a bushel? No! We're going to let it shine. That's the call. Philippians 2.15, Paul speaks of uh, the church becoming, growing in holiness. He says, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. This is where, why God has placed us where he has. This is why the church doesn't cloister itself off in the mountains and separates itself from the world. We live among the world as a distinct people so that the darkness in the world around us will be illuminated by the light that we shine as we live under Christ's rule in the church. Salt and light. Now, I told you earlier to bookmark the comment about uh, the church maintaining its purity in order to be properly salty in the world. I want to revisit that now. I'm going to start by quoting uh, Russell Moore from his wonderful book, Onward, Engaging the Culture Without Losing the Gospel. Listen to this. This imagery of salt and light binds together the internal and external witness of the church, the call to both proclamation and demonstration. The salt must be savory or else it is of no use to the world. And the light from the church is anchored to a lampstand within the churches, that referring to the presence of Christ, like from Revelation. The internal doctrinal and moral ordering of the church is a matter of mission. Without it, the presence of Christ is gone, the lampstand removed, and with it, the light that shines out into the world. 
A church that loses its distinctiveness is a church that has nothing distinctive with which to engage the culture. A worldly church is of no good to the world. Make no mistake, the matter of church membership, of making commitments, of overseeing one another's discipleship, of tending to the needs of one another and living accountably within the clear boundaries of the family of God, the matter of church membership is bound up together inextricably with the Great Commission. Church membership goes hand in hand with church mission. An internal debate, that's not the right word, uh, an in-house critique among Christians is that often churches are insular. That is focusing only on themselves and neglecting their mission to the world around them. Now, it's true, of course, that we can get the scales out of balance here and become so inwardly focused that we forget about our neighbors around us. But don't let anyone convince you that church health is irrelevant to the church's mission. Don't believe for a moment that a church can have fruitful gospel engagement with their community when they are internally in chaos. Lackadaisical about church attendance, suspicious of leaders, competing with each other for position and influence, unclear on the boundaries of church membership, sloppy in applying them. A church in such a condition cannot bear faithful kingdom witness to the world around them because they've lost their distinctness. They've lost the flavor of the life of the kingdom. In fact, they actually undermine their witness to the kingdom, essentially working against themselves. The tricky thing here is that a church who self-diagnoses some you know, disorder or unhealth can't hit the pause button on their mission to the world. Well, let's wait until we reach a certain level of health and maturity, and then we'll think about how we might reach our community. Now, th this is a little bit like the competing values of building relationships with your neighbors and hiding your messy house, right? I can't invite my neighbor over because it's too messy. I'd be embarrassed. Anybody ever been there before? Sometimes the posture of hospitality calls us to let our neighbors in, even if there's still some laundry pile on a chair and some unswept dirt on the floor. And so in the church, we must be always working at both of these arenas all the time. Internal order and health and external witness and engagement. We have to be working on these things simultaneously all the time. So we aim for a mutual dynamic of internal care and external engagement. That is, we live side by side, tending to one another's spiritual well-being and growth. And at the same time, we maintain an outward-facing orientation on the lookout for spiritual and physical need around us and reaching outward in courageous love. We've got to be doing these things at the same time all the time and trusting God's grace to grow us in both of these capacities. Lord, increase our, our faithfulness, our health, our order, our life together and increase our diligence and courage and fruitfulness in bearing witness to the kingdom. 
reaching outward in courageous love is integral to the viable kingdom witness of the local church. Even if our internal order and discipleship were A+, could not be improved, we will not fulfill the purpose for which Christ placed us here if we fail to reach out in acts of love and kindness and blessing. In the same way, Jesus says, that is just as a lamp gives light to everyone in a house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. They've got to see it. The world has to see the good works of the people of God in order to give glory to your Father. So the inner life of the people of God, loving, serving, giving, helping, blessing, providing, should spill over into our homes and our workplaces and our neighborhoods. This can happen, of course, both formally and informally, both corporately and individually, right? So there's things that the church can do collectively and in an organized way to say, here's something we're going to do, a way that we're going to reach out in love to our neighbors. And then there's all kinds of ways that we do this individually while the church is scattered, right? Here's a smattering of some of the ways that that CF is engaged in formally, corporately bearing kingdom witness in our community. Serving at the senior center and running, volunteering meals on wheels. Uh, Supporting Rafa Clinic. Remember the baby bottle challenge, by the way. There's still baby bottles out here to be gotten. And the last report I saw was like that we're dead last, all right? Just saying. Don't forget. Uh, We support Hunt County Shared Ministries, otherwise known as FISH, a food pantry and other services to the needy in our community. We provide direct benevolence assistance to people in our community who ask us for help. You might not see that or know that, but we somewhat regularly have people in our community just come to us. They'll call, they'll walk in the office and say, I need help. And to the best of our ability, with the wisdom that God's entrusted to us, we help where we can. And we do provide tangible help in these kinds of ways. We send students from our church to work with Child Evangelism Fellowship during the summer. I think we have five of those, I think, this summer. Uh, We provide financial support for a missionary family in the Middle East, whose name I cannot say, for safety purposes. We send a percentage of our budget to the Southern Baptist Cooperative Program, which itself funds international missions and North American missions, church planting and evangelism all over the world. We provide financial support to One Hope, an urban church planting ministry in Baltimore City. Uh, We bless teachers and staff at local schools during Teachers Appreciation Week and other times of the year where people will gather and provide blessing and uh, and pray for uh, teachers and and school workers. Uh, We partner with the International Student Ministry at Texas A&M Commerce. Uh, We're hosting Vacation Bible School, July 17th through 21st, by the way, mark your calendars. And there's an effort to intentionally invite kiddos from outside the church. There's going to be an effort to invite people from the apartment complexes across the street from us. So we're trying to expand the reach a little bit. It's not just for church kids. We want this to be neighborhood kids coming and being blessed. For the city, there's an obvious one. That's this week, all right? Four days, Wednesday through Saturday. There's all kinds of opportunities to jump in and help somebody, right, to serve. So I probably missed some stuff. But that's a smattering of things that people are doing in some kind of an organized way under the banner of Cross Point Fellowship 
to extend the blessing of the kingdom of God into our community. So the point is, this is happening at CF, right? Jump in, get involved, find a place where you can, where you can serve. Informally, individually, there's no way to account for all the acts of kindness, gospel conversations, and moments of kingdom witness that take place around our community when CF members are scattered throughout the week. But keep at it. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. This is why he's placed us here. And it only makes sense that we, as Christ's people, would be compelled to go out into the world and shine his light. After all, that is what the Son of God himself did in his incarnation. John 1.9 says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. The one through whom the world was made entered that world in flesh to bring his light into our darkness. John goes on to say, The world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But, and here's the good news, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And now Christ extends his invitation to all men and women, boys and girls, come to me, trust in me, rest in me, and you will have eternal life. Near the end of John's gospel, he summarizes his reason for writing. He says, these things, these stories about Jesus, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. If you are not currently trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior and turning from your sins, receive this invitation, not from me, but from the Lord Jesus himself. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. To the rest of you who do belong to Christ, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. And Crosspoint, you know what to do with that light, don't you? Let it shine. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you've called us to yourself, that you've called us together as the family of God, and that you've sent us into the world to bear witness to the kingdom. Forgive us for our failures in this regard, and correct us, Lord. Correct our vision. Allow us to courageously faithfully extend the life of your kingdom in the homes and neighborhoods and workplaces and streets around us, that the flavor of the kingdom of God might be seen and experienced in Greenville and beyond. Help us by your spirit alive and at work within us to shine forth the light of the presence of Christ who lives among us. Bring sinners to repentance and new life in you. Through our work and witness, we pray. 
and build us up as a local embassy of your kingdom to grow in both our internal health and our external witness. For the glory of Christ, the advancement of his kingdom, we pray these things in his name. Amen.